the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to part two of the memoirs of the court of Queen Elizabeth. Part one concluded with the birth of Princess Elizabeth, but with part two, we will jump forward in time to Elizabeth's early reign and what the early 19th century sentiment was at the time regarding it. I hope you enjoy. Never, perhaps, was the accession of any prince the subject of such keen and lively interest to a whole people as that of Elizabeth. Both in the religious establishments and political relations of the country, the most important changes were anticipated, changes in which the humblest individual found himself concerned, and to which a vast majority of the nation looked forward with hope and joy. The sex, the youth, the accomplishments, the graces, the past misfortunes of the princess all served to heighten the interest with which she was beheld. The age of chivalry had not yet expired, and in spite of the late unfortunate experience of a female reign, the romantic image of a maiden queen dazzled all eyes, subdued all hearts, inflamed the imaginations of the brave and courtly youth with visions of love and glory, exulted into a passionate homage the principle of loyalty and urged adulation to the very brink of idolatry. The fulsome compliments on her beauty, which Elizabeth, almost to the latest period of her life, not only permitted but required and delighted in, have been adverted to by all the writers, who have made her reign and character their theme. And those of the number whom admiration and pity of the fair Queen of Scots have rendered hostile to her memory have taken a malicious pleasure in exaggerating the extravagance of this weakness by denying her, even in her freshest years, all pretensions to those personal charms by which her rival was so eminently distinguished. In the Parliament, which meant in January 1559, two matters personally interesting to the Queen were agitated. Her title to the crown and her marriage. And both were disposed of in a manner calculated to afford a just presage of maxims by which the whole tenor of her future life and reign was to be guided. By the eminently prudent and judicious counsels of Sir Nicholas Bacon, Keeper of the Seals, she omitted to require of Parliament the repeal of those acts of her father's reign, which had declared his marriage with her mother null, and herself illegitimate. Thus the whole perplexing subject of her mother's character and conduct was consigned to an oblivion equally safe and decent, and the memory of her father, which, in spite of all of his acts of violence and injustice, was popular in the nation and respected by herself was saved from the stigma which the vindication of Anne Boleyn must have impressed indelibly upon it. The accession of Francis II, husband to the Queen of Scots, to the French throne, had renewed the dangers of Elizabeth from the hostility of France and of Scotland. And in the politic resolution of removing from her own territory to that of her enemies, the seat of a war which she saw to be inevitable— she levied a strong army and sent it under the command of the Duke of Norfolk and Lord Grey de Wilton to the frontiers of Scotland. 
She also entered into close connection with the Protestant party in that country, who were already in arms against the Queen Regent and her French auxiliaries. Success attended this well-planned expedition, and at the end of a single campaign, Elizabeth was able to terminate the war by the Treaty of Edinburgh, a convention the terms of which were such as to secure her from all fear of future molestation in this quarter. Now moving on to Robert Dudley. Sufficient evidence remains that the sentiments of Cecil respecting the Queen's behavior to Dudley coincided with those of his friend, and that fears for her reputation gave additional urgency about this period to those pleading in favor of matrimony, which her counsel were doomed to press upon her attention so often and so much in vain. But a circumstance occurred soon after which totally changed the nature of their apprehensions respecting her future conduct and rendered her anticipated choice of a husband no longer an object of hope and joy, but of general dissatisfaction and alarm. Just when the whispered scandal of the court had apprised him how obvious to all beholders the partiality of his sovereign had become, just when her rejection of the proposals of so many foreign princes had confirmed the suspicion that her heart had given itself at home. Just, in short, when everything conspired to sanction hopes which under any other circumstances would have appeared no less visionary than presumptuous, at the very juncture most favorable to his ambition, but most perilous to his reputation, Lord Robert Dudley lost his wife, and by a fate equally sudden and mysterious. This unfortunate lady had been sent by her husband, under the conduct of Sir Richard Verney, one of his retainers, but for what reason or under what pretext does not appear, to come to her house in Berkshire, a solitary mansion inhabited by Anthony Foster, also a dependent of Dudley's, and bound to him by particular obligations. Here, she soon after met with her death and Verney and Foster, who appeared to have been alone in the house with her, gave out to that it happened by an accidental fall down the stairs. But this account from various causes gained so little credit in the neighborhood that reports of the most sinister import were quickly propagated. These discourses soon reached the ears of Thomas Lever, a very conscientious person, who immediately addressed to the secretaries of state an earnest letter, still extent, beseeching them to cause strict inquiry to be made into the case, and as it was commonly believed that the lady had been murdered, but he mentioned no particular grounds of this belief, and it cannot now be ascertained whether any steps were taken in consequence of his application. If there were, they certainly produced no satisfactory explanation of the circumstance, for not only the popular voice— which was ever hostile to Dudley, continued to accuse him as the contriver of her fate. But Cecil himself, in memorandum, drawn up some years after of reasons against the Queen's making him her husband, mentions, among other objections, quote, that he is inflamed by the death of his wife, end quote. Whether the thorough investigation of this matter was evaded by the artifices of Dudley or whether his enemies, finding it impractical to bring the crime home to him, 
found it more advisable voluntarily to drop the inquiry. Certain it is that the queen was never brought in any manner to take cognizance of the affair, and that the credit of Dudley continued as high with her as ever. But in the opinion of the country, the favorite passed ever after for a dark designer, capable of perpetrating any secret villainy in furtherance of his designs, and skillful enough to conceal his atrocity under a cloak of artifice and hypocrisy, impervious to the partial eyes of his royal mistress, though penetrated by all the world besides. This idea of his character caused him afterwards to be accused of practicing against the lives of several of their persons who were observed to perish opportunely for his purposes. Each of these charges will be particularly examined in its proper place, but it ought here to be observed that not one of them appears to be supported by so many circumstances of probability as the first, and even in support of this, no direct evidence has ever been adduced. Under all the circumstances of a situation, Dudley could not venture as yet openly to declare himself the suitor of his sovereign. But she doubtless knew how to interpret both the vehemence of his opposition to the pretensions of the Archduke and the equal vehemence with which those pretensions were supported by an opposite party in her council, of which the Earl of Sussex was the head. Few could yet be persuaded that the avowed determination of the Queen in favor of a single state would prove unalterable. Most, therefore, who observed her averseness to a foreign connection, believed that she was secretly meditating to honor with her hand some subject of her own, who could never have a separate interest from that of his country, and whose gratitude for the splendid distinction would secure to her the possession of his lasting attachment." And that's where we'll end part two of this series. In part three, we will continue Elizabeth's story with her lack of a husband and the concerns of the future of the Tudor dynasty. Until next time, I'm Rebecca Larson. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. Dynasty. 